Virginia Tech used a big second half to beat UVA on Monday night, the Hokies' sixth straight win. What does that result mean for both schools' NCAA tournament hopes? Duke holds off Wake Forest for a dramatic win, while Coach K deals with drama off the court. All that, who've been the ACC's best players this season, and which coaches are on the hot seat? This week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 77 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC Sports Podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 14-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you, my friend? Good afternoon, Mike. I'm well. Hope you're the same. I am frozen. Because as I <laughs> mentioned to you and, and Dean Hoffmeyer, our producer, uh, before we started, we were having insulation put in. Uh, and they told us because we had the foam spray that we had to be out of the house. Uh, yesterday, we stayed in a hotel. and We had to have the windows open to kind of clear things out. And just our luck, uh, the days before they arrived here in Charlottesville, it was 60 degrees. Uh, today is getting up into the, the 50s and 60s here later in the week. But the two days we were... <laughs> With the windows open, it was in the, the low 30s. So nice. The, and we haven't turned on the, the heat yet because we don't want any of the stuff from the attic kind of blowing around. And uh, we also have two monster dogs who we could not leave in the backyard because they would dig out uh, and run through the neighborhood. So my wife and I basically took turns huddled up in the backyard playing <laughs> ball with them to make sure they didn't escape uh, while the other one would go to the hotel to warm up. And uh, so, yeah. If I sound a little slow or a little off today, it's because I'm, I'm still defrosting from that experience. <laughs> as, as, as someone who usually sleeps with three layers of clothing, uh, I, I get the whole uh, defrosting part. No, yeah, I, sh- I should send you a picture. I'm sitting here with a, a space heater almost touching my leg and a big mug of, of hot tea. So <laughs> uh, that's that's where I am. You can tell I, I handle the elements extremely well. So, David, w- when last we spoke, one of the topics we hit on was the Super Bowl. Uh, our food choices, certainly, and, and for Dean and I, our, our chili recipes. But uh, we also talked about the game. Did things pan out, play out? the way you anticipated, because one of the the main points you made was, hey, how is Cincinnati going to block the Rams? And (laughs) Poorly, as it turns out. (laughs) I was going to say they they should have listened to the episode because uh, they did not block the Rams. Anything surprise you about the Super Bowl? And and overall, how would you kind of rate the game? It It wasn't a classic Super Bowl, but boy, it was dramatic at the end, and that's what you want. And that's what these NFL playoffs have been since that first weekend. You know, the first weekend's games were all blowouts. But from then on, from the divisional round on, you couldn't have asked for more late game tension. And that's what we had Sunday night in in Los Angeles. And you're right. The Bengals could not block the Rams, specifically Von Miller, and especially Aaron Donald. I mean, I... I get Cooper Cup winning the MVP, yeah. but holy smokes, Aaron Donald. Yeah. They, you know, the thing with Aaron Donald is the few times they did block him, it seemed like he still ended up making the play. Yeah. I mean, he made one tackle at one point with kind of one arm where he had a guard taking him away, 
and I'm pretty sure he had a tight end or a back chip him on the play, and he just kind of reached out with one arm, and um, it's just a tremendous instincts for for the gaps and finding the ball carrier. And but I think you're right. I mean, for me, it's <laughs> I judge the Super Bowl again as a Miami Dolphins fan, so I don't ever have a rooting interest in the thing because my team doesn't get there. I judge it by, is it competitive? Is it the kind of game that if it was the regular season, you'd be channel surfing? Or is it a game that you'd say, hey, in the commercial, I'll grab another bowl of chili because I'm going to sit here and watch this thing. And I I thought it was competitive. I thought both quarterbacks had great stories. Both quarterbacks took a bit of a beating in the game, uh, toughed it out, played through. Um, You know, From that point of view, I think I was going to be happy for either of those quarterbacks um, with their stories that we went over. And um, yeah, Cooper Cup, <laughs> yeah, I think very deserving. And, and he was fun to watch. Cooper Cup it, at the end of the Super Bowl reminded me of the great high school player that he's the only guy on his team. So you know where the ball's going and you know exactly what they're going to do. And But somehow he still makes the catches, makes the plays, wins the game. Uh, that shouldn't happen <laughs> in the NFL. But that was the vibe I got from Cooper Cup. Like, this is the guy that we're going to get him the ball. And, and really Cincinnati couldn't stop it. Well, especially after OBJ went down yeah. with the first half injury, because he, he was playing so well and he gave Matthew Stafford two options mm-hmm. when it came to his wide outs. But once Beckham was gone, you're right. It was all Cooper cup and you're sitting there on the couch or wherever you might've been thinking, if I know where the ball's going, why don't you? And why aren't you doing a little bit better job of shadowing that cat? Right. It, it felt like the classic where, where people say, we're not going to let that guy beat you. Mm-hmm. If I'm Cincinnati, I say, okay, we're going to do everything we can schematically to take away Cup and see what else you got out there. Because yeah, the Rams couldn't run the football, even though nobody told Sean McVay that. Uh, they kept trying. They couldn't run the ball. They didn't really have other options after the, the, the Beckham injury. And yeah, I would have I would have had a guy under, a guy over, and said, okay, you're going to have to go somewhere else with the football if you want to win this Super Bowl. Now, David, one thing I did miss was the halftime show, partially because... I've been underwhelmed by halftime shows for the greater part of my lifetime. And it's, it's really not my cup of tea to begin with. I don't, I don't really care about uh, the halftime show, but also that was about eight 30 it hit. And that's my two-year-old's bedtime. So mm-hmm. that was my chance to grab him, run upstairs, read him a couple books, sing him a couple songs, cross my fingers and hope that he'd stay, stay in the bed and <laughs> let me watch the second half. I go to Twitter. Sounds like I missed a pretty good show. David, what did I, did you watch the halftime show? And if yes. so, what, what did I miss? Well, you 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 missed an homage to old school rap, and that that is not my choice of music. But what was interesting for me, Mike, is I was watching the halftime show with my wife, who is considerably younger than I, and her brothers and their wives. And dude, they loved it. They were going crazy. And and Dr. Dre, I mean, I think he's cross generational, and even Eminem to to a certain extent. But everything, I mean, they were tapping their feet and singing along, and their kids were hazing them, and it was so much fun to watch them watch the show. No, that that would have been my generation then. Yeah, um, because th- those are the the artists and the songs that um, I was joking. <laughs> when I was a senior in high school, I got a, a camcorder, and uh, so we would go, you know, on trips, you know, with friends, or you know, we got a beach house for beach week. Um, 
you know, after the, the winter formal, the prom, those kind of things. And in the background of those old cassette video cassettes that we recorded, you always had Dr. Dre, Biggie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, you know, sort of the, the soundtrack to my, to that, uh, time in my life. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's, um, the Snoop was on for the entirety of senior uh, year beach week for me. So yeah, I think, uh, I, you know, my wife keeps telling me I need to go back, look it up, find it on, on YouTube or whatever and watch it because, uh, it sounds like they, they hit a home run with this one, which is, is nice. Cause like I said, I've been, not that I have a high expectation for Super Bowl halftime shows and I'm far more into the football part, but been mostly underwhelmed by, by them in, in recent years. And it sounds like this one may be worth going out, going back and finding. Absolutely. It, it was LA, yeah. which, which it needed to be. You got You got to put on a show if you're out there in, in showtime land, right? Yep. Now I thought we got a pretty good show. Monday night, David. We were we were not in L.A. It wasn't quite no. that that uh, sophisticated or swanky. We were in Blacksburg, which has its own charm, and certainly did. I thought at Castle Coliseum, where the crowd wow. was rocking, the student section was full and and full of energy. Um, you know, some of the the Virginia Tech icons and Frank Beamer was was there in the house, and Brent Pry came out with the Commonwealth Cup. Well, we'll talk about that at some point. But on the court, David, a big game for Virginia. A big game for Virginia Tech, big game atmosphere. It was a good one. It, it absolutely was. And don't be misled by the nine-point final margin. This thing was tight, late. UVA fell behind by a couple possessions, then had to foul. And that's what caused you know a little bit more separation in the final seconds. But yeah, and and you mentioned the atmosphere, Mike, and I thought that played such a big role. And it was interesting because earlier in the day, the, the game was Monday, and that's the day that the ACC coaches do their weekly Zoom with us media knotheads. And I had asked Mike Bray about Virginia Tech and how difficult they can be to defend with their inside-out combination. And he, he went, went with the question for a, for a little while, but then he said, but don't sell them short defensively, mm-hmm. especially in the second half at home when the visitors have to shoot into that student section. He, and, he, yep. and he specifically said there's a difference, first half, second half. And lo and behold, we go to Castle the other night, and what happens? Virginia shoots 48% in the first half when it's shooting at the hoop toward the tunnel, going to toward the student section in the second half. Cavaliers go 10 for 30, 33.3%. Yeah, and it it is a difference maker. And I talked to the Virginia players about that after the game, and and they all admitted two things. One, they said the crowd was a big factor because it seemed to bring energy and life to Tech. Right, Jaden Gardner uh, and Reese Beekman both said that you know, hey, you know, we play in front of hostile crowds. We know the deal, but it's yeah, they like just Tech- wanted Duke for heaven's right. sake, exactly. But they said it felt like more than any opponent, Tech was feeding off that energy. Yeah, that it really got them going. And they mentioned that there was a difference in the second half when things uh, got tighter. That it felt more hostile. It felt louder. It felt more of a factor and um the statistics certainly bear that out now david this game was and i'm glad you mentioned that that the the close that it was tied with 624 to play Mm -hmm. it was very tight keve aluma uh, finishes with 24 points he finishes 10 for 14 shooting and he was pretty hard to guard especially in that second half you know he's had good games against uh, uva before but i thought 
in, in crunch time, he was really good in this one. Mike, he's played three games against the Cavaliers. He scored 75 points. Even you and I can do that math. <laughs> 25 again. How many players do you think have played against UVA over the years multiple times and are averaging 25 a night? I, I, I would. My guess would be zero. Yeah, well, of, one. Yeah, well, right. Other than Kevin <laughs> um, Aluma. About, I mean, you think about how good they are defensively, number one. Um, it's certainly a huge factor. But two, the style, right? The low mm-hmm. possession game. Like how many yeah. guys are scoring that many consistently anyway? You know, it's just, um, it really was remarkable. And, and, and it, it gave Virginia Tech something to hang its hat on on the offensive end. Because you mentioned the defense was the difference. The defense was so good in the second half. Um, connected. Edgy, those were the words Mike Young Mike used Young to us used, yeah. after the game. And um, those are the words he used back uh, in the non-conference when they did that with um, Providence, right? They had some other, uh, with Dayton, um, and then some other games where he thought that just defensively they were connected. And then for whatever reason, they got away from it. And he's been trying to kind of pull them back, right? Pull them back to edgy, pull them back to connected. And um, congratulations, Mike Young, because you certainly, at least for a night and here on this win streak, I I think, uh, have been able to do that. Absolutely. And Mike, if I had told you pregame that the Hokies were going to go five for 20 (laughs) from three, you would have said what? Yeah, I would have said they're, they're done for. Right. I mean, that's the formula to beat Virginia, and that's particularly the formula, I think, for this Hokey team. Um, Hunter Couture, he needs to go wild for them to beat UVA. Naheem Aline, he needs to find his stroke for them to beat UVA. Sean Padula needs to have another, um, was it Miami kind of game for, for them to beat Florida UVA, State? Florida State for them to beat UVA. Instead, none of that really right? happens. <laughs> none, none of it, it happened. And, uh, and here you get Virginia Tech still, and, and again, you know, winning comfortably by the final margin, but winning a very competitive and very important ball game um, without the, the the aid of the three point shot. Now let's make the point here because Tony Bennett uh, said it well. Uh, our our colleague Greg Medea asked him about, hey, you held Virginia Tech to to twenty five percent from three. You know, that's pretty darn good. And what did Tony say? He said, yeah, yes. they held us to zero percent. So I guess they win by twenty five percent. Correct, because David. Virginia, 0 for 9 from the three-point line. How about that? First time they hadn't made a three since November 2016 against St. Francis. Uh, I've I've not done the research of when the last time they did not make a three in a league game was. And maybe maybe bet, before they before they legalized and brought the three-point shot in. It may be. And it take Mike, you know, and our, our listeners are aware in today's basketball, be it professional or college, you have to have some, you don't have to be the golden state warriors. You don't have to be the Suns, but you have to have some proficiency beyond the arc and you go over. I don't care if you only attempt three, but if you don't, if you don't make threes, you're not going to win. Yeah, I mean, if you're Virginia, the struggle you have putting up points, you need a couple to go down just for the points. Uh, but then the idea of extending the defense and, and opening things up inside for Gardner, who who did have another uh, good game, uh, he struggled in the second half when that defense really clamped down. Big time, Justin um, Mutz. Yeah, see, it made so, him Gar- uncomfortable. Yeah, Gardner had 17 points in the game. He had two 
in the second half. He had three turnovers all in the second half. And he said after the game, you know, that that was on him, that um, Mutz did make him uncomfortable, that they played better defense on him in the second half. Uh, and he responded by being uh, careless with the basketball in a game that his team couldn't afford it. So um, I thought that was one of the, the big changes in the game in the second half. I also thought a big factor in the game, and let's not kill the kid because he's been great and he was the, yeah. the point guard on a national. But Kihei Clark had maybe the worst game I've ever seen him play in terms of he could not get his shot to go down. He was 0 for 5 from 3, 1 for 9 from the field. And the 1 came when? What, inside a minute? It, it was, 30, it, 32, it was I'm looking 32 or 34 seconds to play. Yeah, irrelevant. Right. Um, so he was a non-factor in terms of scoring. But hey, we've seen Kihei Clark play some great basketball games where he's a non-factor scoring. Yeah. But four fouls, got himself into foul trouble. He only had two assists. He had two turnovers. Uh, seemed bothered by by the crowd who got on him early. He shot an air ball early. And if you've ever been to a college basketball game that has a rowdy student section, you know you don't want to do that. So every time he touched the ball, it was air ball, air ball. And there were some other choice words that we won't say on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, that's in unfortunate. Case, in case anybody's got their, their family listening. And yeah, I, I think, I don't know that that's necessary for, for the atmosphere that you, you want at Tech. But um, Key Clark, David had a bad night, and when you're not hitting threes and, and your your leader has a bad night, that's a bad combination. Yeah, it it, it really is, and you're you're right. Let, let's not dump it all all on him just because he's he's been so clutch throughout his his career, date, dating back to his freshman season. But was was not his night, and again, as, as only he can, because he's so dry and literal (laughs) you know where i'm going (laughs) after the game i forget i think it was doug dowdy was asking tony bennett about if the crowd got under kihei's skin you know especially with the air ball chant and tony said well i guess the lesson there is don't shoot an air ball right if you don't shoot an air ball they won't chant it right and he said it just as deadpan and as serious as he could be Right. And, and yeah, Tony had a few of the, those good moments in the, in the post game, which I appreciated. But um, it did feel to me, though, because the game was close, like, hey, Kie is going to hit the yeah. tying or winning three. Which he's and, done there before. Right. Right. He's done that where it's the only basket he scores is the game winner mm-hmm. um, or he gets the, you know, a ball to roll off the flange and and uh, you know there have <laughs> right. been there have been those moments and it, it just didn't happen for them and, and again not not all on him armand franklin continuing to struggle was 0 for 3 uh from three point range and four from 11 from the field so not even one of those games where the three isn't going down but he's doing some other things hunter uh, couture defense mike yeah don't it, don't sleep on that cat when it comes to all defense in the in the league mm-hmm. he's he, he is a he's mean as a snake. He is so good on the defensive end. Yeah, and it was interesting hearing Mike Young say that they had kind of identified Armand Franklin as the key there because um, whether or not he's hitting the threes, he was scoring at the high elbow. He was driving to the rim. He was getting to the foul line, and that's why Couture was on Franklin for most of the night. And uh, that duo of Couture kind of on the perimeter and Mutz being able to do uh, what he can do inside, um, that's a pretty formidable defensive duo. Um, and again, plays right into where we started with, are you edgy? Are you connected? Mm-hmm. Um, those two leading the way, you know, Virginia Tech is all of that. 
Well, and it's it's very similar, Mike, to UVA's kind of mm-hmm. inside-outside defensive tandem of Reese Beekman and of late Jaden Gardner, who's been so good on the defensive end. Yeah, Gardner really has been, and, and um, it was interesting that they went with Kafaro for the most part, especially early uh, on Aluma. I thought Aluma ate his lunch, but it was just too quick for Kafaro. Um, you know, Gardner would have been giving up some size, but the the, the way he plays, I, I would have been interested to see a little more Gardner against Aluma. Um, we didn't get it, but who knows? Maybe in Brooklyn, the basketball gods will, will <laughs> deem us worthy of a third one because the first two were pretty darn good. They uh, really were. Virginia won 54-52 in the game in Charlottesville, and obviously Tech coming back with the big win. Uh, in this one Monday. So, David, w- what does it all mean? Let's start with Virginia Tech. Uh, to the victors go to the spoils, or at least the, the first spot here in the conversation. <laughs> uh, um, they came in with with a strong net ranking, even though we struggle to kind of ex- explain it. <laughs> yeah. when, when you look at the resume, um, I think this was a crucial win. I, th- I think had they lost, it would have been hard to get in when the committee would sit down at some point, David, and have in the same pile of Let's be honest, kind of mediocre, you know, teams. You're looking at the end there at the bubble. Um, they would have had Virginia Tech and UVA in that same pile, the same stack of resumes, and I, I think they would have quickly ruled out UVA, and potentially that would have sunk Virginia Tech. Because how do you put in Tech if you've already left out UVA and UVA beats them twice? I thought it was a big win for Virginia Tech. I, I think they have the opportunity to take care of business um, and be on the right side of the bubble. What's the outlook for the Hokies? We got to keep this winning streak alive, Mike. They they're the first ACC team ever to start two and seven in the league and then win the next six. So they've already made that history. Here's some more history that they're probably going to make. They started zero and four. No zero and four ACC team has ever finished above five hundred in the conference. Hokies could very well do that. They're sitting there at at eight and seven, but they have. Absolutely no margin for error. They they do not they still do not have a quad one victory. That's how the net classifies games. They'll have a chance at Miami a week from Saturday. But they need they need to keep this going. They they need to to beat Carolina on Saturday at, at, at Castle Coliseum, a team that beat them at the Smith Center earlier this season, and then take take care of business against some of the you know, some of the lower division teams that they will <clears throat> face, including Louisville and Clemson. Yeah, that, that's really more than anything what scares me about their remaining schedule. I think Carolina's the, 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 clearly the hardest game. I, I, mm, you know, Carol- at Miami. Yeah, Miami's tough. It, it, to me, if Carolina shows up, which you don't know, <laughs> right. but if Carolina shows up, um, that's the most talented team left, I think, on their schedule. Certainly at Miami will be difficult. But to me, it, it's almost harder to beat Georgia Tech, Louisville, Clemson, because that's all three, right? Like, you've got to get those three, yeah. and, and you've got to have that consistency. And um, I think you can let Carolina or Miami, one of those, go, but you've got to take care of business against the, the let's face it, the, the bad teams right now, the, the teams that are lower in the league. The other thing that's interesting this year, David, tell me if you agree, I don't think that teams on the bubble are going to automatically get the boost that you would from the ACC tournament. Like it used to be if you went, if you're on the bubble and you won a game or two uh, in the ACC tournament, you probably beat at least one, maybe two pretty good teams. And you kind of got this automatic boost there at the end. 
I don't know that winning a game or two in Brooklyn is going to necessarily do that for these teams this year. I agree. And Mike, the last time I looked, I have not looked at the net this morning today after last night's games, but it's going to be very similar. As of yesterday, Virginia Tech at number 35 and Duke at number 11 were the only ACC teams in the top 35. I mean, meanwhile, you've got seven from, or excuse me, six from the Big East, six from the SEC, six from the Big Ten, four from the Big 12, two from the ACC in the top 30. Virginia Tech is seventh in the ACC standings, but second among ACC teams in the net rankings. Go figure, you know, Go explain that algorithm to me. And 0 for 5 in quad one games. Correct. The next team in the standings is 37. Virginia Tech's at 35 right now this morning. Carolina's at 37. They're 0 for 7 in quad one games. Mm-hmm. So maybe we're wrong about how valuable quad one – it does feel, at least this year, that it's more about um, not losing quad three games yeah. than it is winning quad one games, which yeah. – um, is interesting and, and makes some sense. Now, I will say to your point about the top 35, 37 North Carolina, 38 Wake Forest. So they've got two that are that are right there. I feel like uh, you know them and, and Notre Dame, who's at 55, they're kind of in that control your destiny. Miami's the one that, that really jumps out to me because if I didn't look at the net rankings, I'd say Miami's in, in pretty comfortable position. Four and one in Q1 games. Right. Huge, huge performances in big games. They're 67 this Mm -hmm. morning in the net. David, what does Miami have to do? I mean, do we feel good about Miami? How how worried are we about that net ranking? I think you shared uh, on last week's episode the, the, the lowest net ranking to get in that large bid, I think you said was in the low 70s. Is, is yes. that, am I remembering that right? You, you you remember correctly, 73. But but let's recall, though, that we have a very small sample size here because the net has only been used to select the field for two previous tournaments, 19 and 21. We obviously, we didn't have selection Sunday on 2000 in, in 2020. So we, we don't know how it would have played out in terms of, of net rankings. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Miami at 67 is in a heck of a lot better shape than Virginia Tech, which is 32 spots ahead of it. Yeah, it's that that to me is bizarre. But uh, the other thing is, you know, Miami plays Virginia. Miami plays Virginia Tech. So Miami will have sort of the 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 chance to, yeah, you know, solidify, I guess, itself here here down the stretch. Right, and Miami also, Mike, if if I recall the schedule correctly, Miami hosts Notre Dame this Saturday. And my, or is it Notre Dame Wake Forest on Saturday? I may have that wrong. I'll pull but, it up as we discuss it here. But yeah, yeah there, there are opportunities still. It's just, you know, it's funny about the ACC this year. Usually you think of opportunities as Duke, Carolina, mm-hmm. maybe Syracuse, Louisville. It's just different names that are your opportunities. Your opportunities are Wake Forest, Miami, Notre Dame. Those are your important opportunities here as we go down the stretch. And um, like we talked about Virginia Tech having to take care of business, the teams that are on the bubble that win those games are going to be the teams that that get there. And the teams that uh, falter in those games that they might not be marquee in terms of the name recognition, but they're marquee this year. Um, That's what's going to decide, I think, ultimately how this thing shakes out. Agreed. And Miami had a huge road win Saturday at, Mm -hmm. at Wake. That that was big for for Jim Laranaga's bunch, 
And it's the fourth game this season, Mike, that the Hurricanes have won when trailing by at least 13 points. That's what happens when you have really good, really old guards. Miami's remaining schedule, Louisville should win that. Virginia probably need to win that. At Pittsburgh should win that. Virginia Tech um, is really their last chance to to improve because then it's Boston College and Syracuse. So, um yeah, so Notre Dame plays at Wake on Saturday. I had that. I had that wrong. But uh, yeah, so that, that's going to be that Miami Virginia Tech game, and, and this weekend's Notre Dame Wake. I mean, those are going to be mm-hmm. uh, defining games for how this thing shakes out for the ACC. And you know, this is also going to be a year, I think, in the ACC, and we've talked about this. Where as you're coming down the stretch, as you're as you're there in uh, Selection Sunday, as you're one of those bubble teams, it's, you're really going to be rooting hard this year against the bid thieves. Oh yeah. Chalk. You want chalk. Exactly. And that used to be the way you lived if you were the ninth team in the ACC, the tenth team in the I think this Seth year Green- the, Seth Greenberg. Right. If you were Seth Greenberg, you were rooting against those bid thieves. But the top seven or eight felt pretty darn good. I think this year maybe the top four, and then everybody else is on the edge of their seats on, on pins and needles and um, maybe that's the way it should be. It makes it fun. How about Virginia? David, how, how devastating was this loss for Virginia's postseason hopes? Man, they're they're in a bad way, Mike. And they, they just are. Now, you talk about opportunities. <laughs> Caval- Cavaliers got two of them coming up consecutively. We'll know a whole lot more about the Cavaliers' NCAA aspirations come next Wednesday night in John Paul Jones Arena. Because as we just mentioned, Cavaliers in Miami, where, where you'll be Saturday, rough duty if you can get it. Uh, <laughs> and then they come home for the rematch against Duke Wednesday at JPJ. You talk about two just extra, extra large games. They fit the bill. I think, and I know people who listen to this podcast hate this because I've, I've gotten the tweets and the emails. So I am hearing you. I hear what you all are saying, and I, I apologize. But um, I have a hard time seeing them sweeping Duke this year. I, I think Duke comes back really fired up from from the way the game at Cameron went. I think that makes Miami a must-win for this team Saturday. It might be anyway, but I think Miami, um, because of what I expect from Duke the following week, I think Miami is an absolutely crucial game this weekend. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, and I, I think both of them are. And just you know, given the way the, the, the Cavaliers have, have played this season, I mean, it's clearly it's not a vintage Tony Bennett group, especially on, on the defensive end, not up to, to his usual top five in, in the country standards. That's a high bar. But what folks have, have come to expect, it's hard to have a lot of faith in this team. Yeah, the consistency isn't there, yeah. which is really and, and again it starts defensively. But David, I, I'll argue and I argue this anytime a Tony Bennett team struggles at all defensively, that a lot of it has to do with the offensive end because I think this group is still pretty darn good when they've got five guys back and set. Um, it just feels like with all the missed shots, there's a lot of racing back, trying to catch up, and it may not actually be transition buckets. Yeah. But secondary break things it like is that. Yeah. yeah and it's it's a virginia defense that seems to start most of its possessions already in rotation right already somebody's got somebody else's spot and they're moving and they're trying to adjust because of a missed shot and i think that disrupts this defense more than people uh talk about and, and i think i think their problems start with the offense 
and that's the reason for some of the, the defensive issues. But nonetheless, Virginia, Virginia Tech gave us a, a great game, a very entertaining, great atmosphere Monday night. And that brings us to this week's edition of Take It or Leave It. Thank you, Mike. The new Virginia Tech football coach, Brent Pry, came out onto the court during halftime on Monday night's game carrying the Commonwealth Cup. That's the trophy that goes to the winner of the UVA uh, and Virginia Tech game each year. He pretended like he was going to throw the uh, trophy to Red Panda, (laughs) the uh, unicycle riding halftime uh, icon. Hokies fans, not surprisingly, just absolutely loved it. While UVA fans grouse that Pry has yet to win the cup himself. So take it or leave it. Celebrating with the Commonwealth Cup before you've coached a game for the Hokies. <laughs> Let's start with David. This is, this is absolutely fabulous stuff here. And I am 100% taking this. He's playing to his audience. Who cares if UVA fans grouse? This game wasn't in Charlottesville or on some neutral floor. This is in Blacksburg. This is at the castle. Of course he should have done this. And and pretending like he's throwing it to, to Red Panda, perfect. Crowd loved it, amped him up. That's what you want. Great, great marketing idea. Thank you, David. Mike? I agree 100%. I thought, and I tweeted this, I thought Brent Pry came out of that tunnel like one of the old WWE heels, right? Like, came out of the tunnel, oh, there he is, it's Brent Pry, and he's got the chair, but it was Brent Pry, and he's got the Commonwealth Cup, and I thought it was fantastic. Now, I will say this, since he hasn't coached a game in the rivalry, you know, what else should he do? He should embrace it, right? Embrace the rivalry. That's what you got to do. You do put the, the target on your back a little sure. more right? Bronco Mendenhall did it when he talked so much about, we're going to beat Tech. They started every season breaking the rock that said, beat Tech. They broke all the huddles in their offseason with beat Tech. That's what makes rivalries great, though, right? And I love that Brent Pry has the personality to to soak it up and to be part of it. And, you know, yeah, he hasn't, he hasn't coached it yet, but it tells you how important he thinks that game is and, and how he understands this fan base. And David, in the short time, we've seen that. We've seen it with the important stuff, right? Recruiting in state, all of that. And that's very important. I'm not trying to gloss over it. But we've also seen it with getting his butt out onto the drill field and having a snowball fight with the student yeah. body, yeah. right? He, he just, he gets it. He, he's fun to be around. Um, he's bringing that energy. And what is the point of a rivalry if it's not to tweak the the, the opponent, to tweak the rival? I, I absolutely loved it. Like I said, I, I think the guy needs his, his own theme music. Maybe they should have played Enter Sandman before he came out of the tunnel. And um, I always enjoyed that about the old wrestling heels because they'd come out like it was a stunning surprise, but the music was queued up and ready for them to come out of the dressing room and do whatever they were about to do. So that would be my only critique was maybe they needed to play enter Sandman over the red Panda music as he came out. And, and who knows, maybe they should have researched it or re- rehearsed it a little and, and actually tossed her the cup. But um, we've seen a few more bowl drops, David, in the last year or so. So maybe it was better <laughs> that he just mimicked throwing the cup than actually tossed it up there. Yes. We, we, we do not want an accident with the Commonwealth cup and, and Mike, your point is very well taken about what's a rivalry without it, some good-natured ribbing. It's a page straight from the Steve Spurrier playbook, <laughs> right? <laughs> you can't spell Citrus Bowl without UT. Right. I mean, <laughs> just- Which is great, great line, and it adds something for everybody. Yes. And, and you know, I, I always laugh when people say, Oh, well, he's putting that pressure on him to win the game. Spoiler alert, 
<laughs> if you're the head football coach at Virginia Tech, there's pressure on you to beat Virginia and yep. vice versa, right? Like Brent Pry didn't invent the idea that uh, this rivalry is a big deal and that if you have fun with it, people are going to expect more. People expect you to win that game on both sides either way. No doubt. Well, David, Coach K missed the second half of, of Duke's very narrow, very exciting win over Wake, Wake Forest. Uh, he's apparently dealing with some illness. Here we are a couple of days later, and we have no no update. Um, what do you make of, of K's absence and uh, and the way that game unfolded? Yeah, it was a fascinating evening, Mike, at, at Cameron. And the second time this year that he's fallen ill around a Wake Forest game. You'll recall that he missed the entirety of the Blue Devils game in Winston-Salem. John Shire, who's already been named the, the head coach uh, to succeed Mike, filled in that night and filled in again the, the second half on on Tuesday as, as the Blue Devils barely held off Wake Forest. So, I mean, the game was curious because – it was almost as because it happened at halftime. You know, he goes in at halftime. You can tell on TV he's not walking real well, which he doesn't normally because he's had so many joint replacements, but he was struggling even a little more. So you wonder what impact that had in the locker room on his team because his team did not play well in, in the second half. And credit to Wake Forest, you know, they went with a different type of lineup and it, it just didn't didn't go well for Duke. Um, so um, it, John Shire had some X and an Owen to do there late. <laughs> it probably a good experience for him since he's going to have that, that seat and that big whistle next year, but you're right. And, and I, I don't think you can blame Duke for being a little flat um, because it is jarring, right? If, if you go in knowing you don't have your coach, maybe it's like a rallying point, and, but to, to have him, kind of disappear at, at halftime. And, and you heard from the players uh, post-game that there was sort of that relief of he came and talked to them after the game. Right. You got the sense that they were relieved. Well, you're not relieved about something, David, unless you were worried about it initially. So I, I think that um, in some of those comments about, okay, we all felt better once he came and talked to us and we saw he was okay, that tells me that it, that it did kind of jar them um, and maybe explain some of the letdown. And, and we've talked about you know, just how special a season Wake is having and, and Steve yeah. Forbes' crew and um, not the team you want to let down against. You know, maybe there's some teams in this league that uh, if you have a little letdown but you're Duke, you, you still handle pretty easily. Um, that's not Wake this year. So, uh, but yeah, a, a thrilling ending. And so, David, would that would that final shot, that final three-quarter court heave have counted uh, if it had rattled in? I don't think so. The, the, the way I looked at it and you know, saw the replay and the clock and such, but some of the camera angles, like Mark yeah. Williams, the Duke center, is under the basket, and one of the camera angles shows him looking up, and you can see his face as the ball is tracking toward the, the rim, and he's thinking to, my, thinking to himself, oh, my gosh, this thing might go in. And then when it doesn't, he both he and Alondis Williams from Wake Forest, they just looked at each other and kind of smiled yeah. and, and w w as if to think we were that close to just an epic conclusion. No doubt. And, and Steve Forbes had a great line and, and yes. everybody, knows, everybody knows how opposing teams feel about the calls in Cameron Indoor and, and what direction they go. But Steve Forbes said, basically, would that shot have counted? 
probably not here. (laughs) (laughs) So And he's probably right, but I think it also would have been been the right call. But also tells you um, that that Wake's ready to, to to play with the big boys, assuming they they get the job done and, and and get to the NCAA tournament. Steve Forbes has done an outstanding job. Some coaches who have struggled this year, and I'm curious, David, if we think any of them um, are on the the proverbial hot seat. The leader of of the hot seat brigade, of course, was Chris Mack. Uh, yeah. he, va- he vacated that seat. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and when when a coach vacates the hot seat, it means that media fans ever, we're naturally going to slide somebody in. Uh, I don't know that there's a great candidate this year, but I, I think Brad Brownell at Clemson. They're having a disappointing season. Josh Pastor yeah. at Georgia Tech coming off uh, you know, the best year he's had there, winning an ACC tournament, an NCAA trip. They're having a really bad year. Uh, Kevin Keats at mm-hmm. NC State, who's the most intriguing to me, he started his run there with three straight 20-win seasons. His first year he went to the NCAA tournament, and it's fallen off since then. And We'll get into it, but the reason he's the most intriguing to me isn't about what he's done or about Kevin. It's, I think, of the schools we're going to talk about right here, NC State has the highest expectations for its yes. basketball program, and I oh. think that that factors in. I think it factors in with Brownell at Clemson where, hey, it's probably a little bit more, <laughs> a lot more football-driven. I don't know that the pressure's there on the same way. And the last name we want to throw in there, even though he's only been there four years, is Jeff Capel at Pittsburgh. Obviously, they're enduring a really rough season. Um, he's yet to have a winning season with the Panthers. His AD, Heather Likes, came out, gave him a pretty solid vote of confidence, I yes. thought, the way I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you listen to those names, first off, David, who who would you put as the heir apparent to Chris Mack's uh, burning keister seat there? <laughs> well, I I think Mike, it it would be Kevin Keats, and and I don't think that NC State is going to make a change. And first of all, right up front, Brownell and Pasner both signed contract extensions during this most previous off season that extend them through the 2026 season. Kevin Keats already is contracted through 2026. And Jeff Capel, who, by the way, had a pretty nice win last night in Chapel Hill that nobody saw coming, including the Tar Heels, by the way, he's contracted through 2027. So in in my mind, none of these guys is going anywhere in part because of that. It would be very expensive to make a change. But as, as you mentioned regarding NC State, that makes it the most curious situation is, A, the expectations. You're talking about a two-time national championship program. Granted, the last one was in 1983, so we're talking a long time ago. Also, because NC State is right there in the neighborhood with Duke and Carolina, which are also undergoing coaching transitions. Duke to John Shire, North Carolina to Hubert Davis. And if all th- all three of them were in that situation, you know, you just go, wow. It, I can't imagine, I haven't done the research, but I can't imagine that all three of those programs have ever had a head coach with one or none in terms of head co- you know, years of experience. Yeah, maybe back to to their origin stories, I guess. Yeah. But um, you know, and Kevin Keats, uh, Boo Corrigan, also I mentioned Heather likes Boo Corrigan gave him a, a pretty strong endorsement, at least for the season, is the way I read it. Um, yeah. But you got the sense that he understands what what Kevin's doing, and, and that he believes in, in Kevin as a coach. Um, 
I'm curious, you mentioned the contract situations, Mm -hmm. uh, most of them through 2026, one of them through 2027. We stopped talking about the financial impact of the pandemic, but these athletic departments haven't completely recovered from the financial impact. Does that play in at all? I I mean, I, I I would think that if it's a costly move and it's a borderline move, that some of these ADs may still be leaning on the side of if I don't have to make a move, let me not make a move. I agree with you. And absolutely, I think finances play into it. I mean, I've always been of the mind that if you don't have confidence that you have the right coach, that you should make the change, regardless of the buyout. Because in the, in the long run, the deeper in the hole you get, the more expensive it's going to be to get out of it. The more it's going to cost you in terms of ticket sales and donations and such. But in the current economic climate, I think dollars and cents play a much larger role than previously. And another interesting component with Brad Brownell at Clemson is the Tigers are undergoing an AD transition. Mm -hmm. Dan Radakovich, the longtime uh, athletic director there, having left for Miami. And now the new athletic director, internal promotion, Graham Neff, who as a deputy AD, one of the sports he supervised directly was, yeah, you're right, men's, men's basketball. basketball. So he and Brad, Brad Brownell have a long time, long standing relationship, you know, d- direct reporting there. Neff travel with the team in, in many instances. And, you know, I've got to think that there is a comfort there that even diminishes further the chances that uh, Clemson would make a move. I think that's a great point because sometimes you talk about, you know, okay, if there's an AD change, coaches are in peril, right? Mm -hmm. AD wants their own guy. Sure. There wasn't really an, I mean, there was an AD change. I'm being a little silly about it, but there wasn't really a change. If you're Clemson in men's basketball, you've got the same guy uh, essentially overseeing your department and and the guy who worked so closely with Dan Radakovich, uh, so I, I got the same feeling. I look at Brad Brownell. First of all, I think he's one of the more underrated coaches. I, I think he's, I have a lot of respect for him. I think he's a very yes, good coach. He is. I also think when I look at what he's done there, it's probably good enough for Clemson. Um, and I don't mean that derisively, but he's been there 12 years. In half of those years already, he's been to the postseason. Three NCAs, three NITs. He's only had one losing season. This year, he's at 12 and 13, may still pull it out to have another winning season. So they've never really been bad under Brownell, and they've popped up you know, about every three or four years to be pretty darn good. Yeah, had a sweet 16 year. Yeah, I just, it feels like, not that, you know, sure, they'd love a coach to go to the NCAA tournament 12 times in 12 years. I get that. Who wouldn't? But it feels like three NCAs, three NITs, never really having a bad season, never really having, you know, off-court problem. You know, Brad Brownell's program isn't um, a renegade program. It seems like he's a very comfortable, good fit that, to me, Clemson would be in more danger of perhaps losing him to Miami if Jim Laranega retired <laughs> than they would be of of making the decision to fire him. Just my take. I, I, I'm, I'm a big Brad Brownell fan. I think you are, too. Yes, I've I've known Brad for for years back when he was at UNC Wilmington and then you know kind of lost touch with him when he went off to to Wright State but then when he came back in the league kind of re- reconnected with him and have just always always liked him. Yeah, and certainly connections, you know, with Jeff Capel, who was at VCU and, and ODU in his career, and you've known forever, oh. obviously, that whole family. Yes. Uh, 
and then Ke- Kevin Keats, who uh, is from Lynchburg, um, mm-hmm. you know, was at one, one of the prep schools here. And, and um, so these are, and was at UNC Wilmington when I know for me, like, there was some uh, overlap there with covering JMU and um, there's been a lot, and, you know, and Josh Pastner, of course, is a media darling, even <laughs> though he puts everybody in the hall of fame when we talk to him, he's great to us. So certainly uh, if we can keep them all off the hops, hot seat, uh, I think we'd all be happy with that in this particular instance. Absolutely. Well, David, we're talking about the coaches, but let's take a look at the players in the league. And you know, I always, I always love that expression. Uh, it's not the X's and O's; it's the Jimmys and Joes. <laughs> uh, so let's look at some of the Jimmys and the Joes. And, and you look around. We talked a little bit about Wake Forest and Alondis Williams, uh, Duke and Paolo Bancaro. North Carolina, albeit coming off that terrible loss to Pitt, uh, oh. Armando Baycott has been their guy. Those guys all kind of feel like shoe-ins to be first-team all-ACC selections this year. Yep. Certainly, Carolina has a few more voters in that block yep. <laughs> than some of the other regions, which generally lends to to more Carolina guys, not that they're they're not deserving. Uh, but if we assume that Williams, Bancaro, and Baycott are making it to the first team, that's going to leave two spots. Uh Two spots for a lot of guys who, in, in my opinion, have pretty similar resumes. Yeah. Um, who do you look at first? Who, who's, who's the first name when I say, hey, Williams, Bancaro, and Baycott are going to be on the first team? Who's the first name that you say, oh, Mike, don't forget so-and-so? I'm going to give you a shout-out, Mike, because this is a team and a player that you were high on back in preseason. Dane Goodwin at Notre Dame. Yeah. Anchors my fantasy team. <laughs> <laughs> now we know and and boy did he do you right last night yes sir in that overtime the irish having to go overtime at home against boston college but i, I believe he ended up with with 23 shot it real well and he doesn't have overwhelming stats i think he's averaging 14 points a game he's not one of the top 10 scorers in the league but right now, if, if I were voting today, Dane Goodwin would be among my other two on, on first team. Yeah, that's a good pick. But my first one that jumps to mind, even though the season hasn't been what they wanted, uh, is Darian Sebron sure. at NC State. Uh, he leads them in scoring and rebounding. Uh, he's just been earlier in the year. I mean, he would probably have been on our list of shoes. I, yes. I mean, he was just really up there with Alondis Williams as coming kind of out of nowhere and being the star of the league. He certainly cooled off some. Part of that, I think, is teams becoming aware of him, right, and, and having yes. a better feel for what he's going to do, how North Carolina State and Kevin Keats is going to use him, um, what you need to take away. But he's still been very good. He's still been very effective, and he still is, is an important player. So for my number four spot, that would be – my next guy, uh, David, number five, who, who's the last guy to make first team for you? Sebron. Yeah. He's, he's fourth in the league in scoring and second in rebounding. And, and by the way, he's still shooting over 50% on the season. I, I'm big on shooting percentages <laughs> and because to me it's, it speaks to efficiency and such. And that's why a guy like Buddy Bayheim, who's second in the league in scoring. Now this is presuming his father nominates him. <laughs> for, for all ACC, because because two things that our listeners need to understand: number one, we're limited to to who we can vote for by the nominations. It's not an open ballot. And last year, 
And and I don't know if it was an oversight or what happened. Syracuse, Jim Beheim, whoever it was, did not nominate Buddy Beheim for All ACC, and he went off in the postseason. <laughs> if it was a motivational ploy, it worked. Yeah, and if if you're Jim Beheim, I think at this point that's what you say it was. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what it was, you say, yeah, I was trying to light a little fire to my kid. Yeah. But but I, he's only shooting. Buddy's only shooting forty percent. He is on, on a Syracuse team, though, that, that really leans on him yes. and needs him to take a lot of shots. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't view him as the, the sort of selfish volume shooter. Mm. They need him to shoot a ton. And, and when you have to shoot a ton, sometimes you take shots that under normal circumstances you might pass on. <laughs> and I think that affects Buddy's shooting percentage. Because, you know, for that last spot, I, I look at three guys who are scorers. And, and Buddy Beheim, I think, is would be my fifth guy. Okay. But I also look at Michael DeVoe at Georgia Tech, um, who is just an amazing scorer on a team where there isn't much support. Like Jordan Usher is great, and that's it. So teams are ready to focus on Michael DeVoe, and he's still getting 18-6 a night. That's pretty impressive. And and the third guy, kind of in the same category, uh, Cam McGusty at Miami. And those three guys can really fill it up. Uh, McGusty has a little more help around him, but Miami's having a better season. I give Buddy the edge right now, but uh, I, I'm not stuck on him. I'm not sold on him, and I'm not even sold on that final spot going to one of those kind of volume shooter scorer types, but that's where I am right now at least. Yeah, and, and there are plenty of, of other candidates. Mm-hmm. You, you know who the who the metrics, like like Ken Palm's all-ACC team includes? Keve Aluma. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to hit with you was Keve Aluma at Virginia Tech, and Jaden Gardner at UVA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jaden Gardner, I, I don't think people appreciate like his scoring average when you consider how few possessions <laughs> UVA games have. Like Jaden Gardner, and especially of late, he's been a dominant scorer. Uh, and Kevi Aluma, we saw it firsthand Monday night. He is the guy that we thought going into the year could be first team all ACC. Um, I think he's played that way, and I think he's playing even better here down the stretch as these games mean more and more. Yeah. No, I, I I think both will will be in the conversation. I think Wendell Moore mm-hmm. could could end up b- being in the conversation. Mark Williams also at, at Duke. I mean, he's become this dominant defender. Although I I find it hard to bring myself to vote for a first team guy who only plays about twenty eight minutes a game. Yeah, especially because so many of these guys are well up above thirty. Right there, there, there was a time in college basketball where you tried to keep your your stars to maybe twenty eight minutes. Um, that's not the case. I mean, how many teams now? Everybody's basically in that seven eight man rotation. Um, even the teams that were playing more guys early, they tighten it up uh, as you come down the stretch. Um, you know, certainly UVA and Tech don't don't have a ton of options on their benches, but they've been in that category. So, uh, yeah, I think. The guys who are playing heavy minutes at this point are the guys who uh, you can translate it and say, "Hey, their teams are leaning on them more." It's it's not <laughs> it's not garbage time. These are the guys they're going with. Yep, agreed. So, no doubt. Well, it's going to be fun to watch uh, all of that play out. You know, I think those coaches will be safe. I think the race for the All ACC teams are going to be great. I think this fight to see, as we talked about earlier with UVA and Tech, this fight to see who makes the NCAA tournament, how many yeah. ACC teams make it. It's all going to be a lot of, of fun to, to watch, to watch it unfold. 
had a lot of fun to talk about. We hope you guys had a lot of fun listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. We need your support now more than ever. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe, and please join David and me again next time. Mm-hmm.